Hey, what's going on guys? Welcome to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. And today we're going to do that again in one of my favorite ways by doing a sermon review. Now, there has been no pushback, as strong as the pushback that I did uh, when I, or that I got when I did the Jack Hibbs sermon review. Oh my goodness. Like I thought that people pushed back hard on like Stephen Furtick or Mike Todd or those guys. No way. 100% Jack Hibbs has people in his court. Like they are all about making sure the Jack Hibbs um, is rightly represented. So if you're interested at all in that first sermon review I did of Jack Hibbs, I will link that in the description below. Today we are going to do what I call a rewind and try it again, right? There were so many people like, you need to watch another one where he's actually preaching through a series. And I was like, all right, cool. I, I'll make a minute. We'll do that because I don't want to misrepresent somebody, right? I don't want to take one sermon and say, this is their entire preaching habit. Because really when we do these sermon reviews, if you're new here, these sermon reviews aren't about the person giving them. They're really much more about the content within the sermon. That's what we're really looking at. We're saying if any pastor were to present a sermon this way, would it be good or bad? Because again, we use three factors to sort of structure that. One, do they read the scripture? Two, do they exegete the scripture using context and culture? And three, do they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? And those are the three things we look for regardless of who's preaching the sermon. However, even though the sermons are not about, or the sermon reviews are not about the person giving them, obviously they are sort of the example that we're using at the time to do so, and some of that does reflect back on them. So today, we're going to do the first of many rewinds that are coming of people that you guys, those viewers, have pushed back against and said, hey, I don't know if that was a really an accurate representation of that person. So the first one today is going to be Jack Hibbs. We're going to be looking at a sermon that he recently preached called The One and Only Promise Keeper Part 4 from Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at that. Now, before we get into that, though, I've already explained what we look for in the sermons, kind of what the sermon reviews are. If you're new here, there is in the description below a link to what you see on the screen, which is a sermon review guide. I use this every Sunday whenever I listen to my pastor preach. I use this when I sort of prep my sermons to preach myself. And I use that as we're going to do today when I watch sermons online. Only now in the past, I haven't shown you guys the screen. Now I'm going to show you the screen. So what it basically consists of and what you're going to get if you go down in the description and do the free download is this. It's going to be a sermon review guide about the church, the speaker's name, the main scripture, the notes. And then what we look at the very very bottom is, was the sermon expositional, textual, topical, or allegorical? Did they reprove, rebuke, and exhort based on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2? And then the last box there is what we always look at in all the sermons anyway. There's also a visual notes area over here. I usually use it for extra notes, but some people apparently use it uh, for like doodling and drawing. You know, they're visual. They're visual learners, so they do use it that way. So let's go ahead and hop over because obviously you're not here to listen to me rant as you already have for three minutes plus. Let's go over here and we're going to start this sermon review. It is a 50 minute long sermon. So as always, if you want to watch the whole sermon without my comment in it, that link will be down in the description below to this original sermon. Also, I tell you that so you can buckle in. Because this, this is probably going to be a longer sermon review, especially with him going for 50 minutes and me interjecting as I often do. So that being said, let's hop into it. Jack Hibbs, the one and only Promise Keeper, part four. We're actually in the fourth and final part of this lesson that is titled the one and only Promise Keeper. If you all remember, chapter six, verses 
19 and 20 is where we pick it up. However, let's read for context's sake. Let's go all the way back to verse 13, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Okay, so one thing I do want to mention, I'm sorry, one thing I do want to mention is uh, I have seen this sermon almost 90% of the way through. I had to stop before I got to the end of it, but I've seen the majority of this. One of the comments that you guys were making or those those of you that were pushing back against my last review is that the sermons that he normally preaches are expositional through scripture um, and that the one I did was totally an off thing, like it wasn't even a sermon. From what I see from this sermon, and one of the things that caught me off right away was that he goes, hey, this is where we're going to be, but let's, for content sake, context sake, go back and read these verses so we can kind of get caught up to where we're at now. A hundred percent what you should do every single time. Now, I will at the very end, we're not going to talk about it now. At the very end, I am going to talk about sort of um, my take on him when I did the first sermon review and my take on him after this one. You'll have to wait to the end for that. But I do want to say right away, like as soon as the pastor starts off saying, hey, let's go back for context so we know what where we're at here. Let's go back for context and discuss it. A hundred percent. Love it. You've already got me hooked, right? Um, I'll read verse 13. You can uh, read or, or I can read. I'll just read for speed's sake. Then when we get to the, the text for tonight, uh, we'll read it um, together. I'll take it here. For when God made a promise to Abraham, promise, promise, remember, promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he, God, swore by himself. Technically, the Hebrew would be in the Old Testament here in the Greek is that God could swear or shake hands with none greater, so he, show, he, shake, he shook hands with himself. Isn't that cool? It's like this. I, I do hereby solemnly swear. And, and God says to himself, I do hereby solemnly swear. Isn't that precious? I love it. Saying, surely, blessing, I will bless you. That is Abraham. Multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. In other words, we've, we've signed the, the deal, we shook our hand, the argument's over, it's done. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immu immutability, the unchangeableness of his counsel. I love that. Confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, church family, the only two immutable things, technically there's three, but this records two because the context demands it. The three is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The two mentioned here is the Father and the Son. It's awesome, beautiful. And so the two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold on the hope set before us. And before we read the rest of it, Father, we pray in Jesus' name that this profound and awesome truth would take hold in our hearts that would be the very catalyst by which we are a transformed people. In a world of hurt and pain, broken contracts, broken covenants, broken deals, it almost seems impossible to our frail minds that anyone could keep their word. Glory be to God that you keep your word. You are 
the promise keeper. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated in this one and only promise keeper. We saw that God in verses 13 to 14 is himself theologically by biblical revelation bound to himself. That's what we just got done reading a moment ago. I don't know, there's nothing that I can do but trust God that he communicates this to all of us. I I would stand on my head if I could to convince you of this, but that's not gonna do any good. It's gotta be received by faith, and it's this, friends, that God has determined to convince you of his great salvation so much to the point that he bound himself to himself to guarantee the promises. There's nothing greater that you can be offered And we saw this in several ways. We saw in verses 13 and 14 that when God says what he says, he's going to do that thing. He's going to keep his word. You need to be almost militant about that, Christian. When you read something in the Bible, highlight it, grab it, write it down, print it out. Make a photocopy of it. Stick it on your your mirror in the morning, whatever it takes. God must keep his word. He can't change. He's stuck. I say that in an awkward way. He's happily stuck to his word because that is his very person. We'll see that tonight in our closing argument. We also learn this, that what God does is what he will do. If you look at the Old Testament and if you look at the New Testament leading up to this moment in our lives, what God has done, that's what he's going to do. He's so dependable. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't go off on a tangent. He's not whimsical. Now, one thing I do want to point out here is that so far, and this is what you're going to see, apparently, through the rest of this sermon. This is what, at least in this sermon, happens, and I would assume in in most most other Jack Hibb sermons, what we're going to see is that he'll take the verses, and then he'll basically just walk you through them. If you're new here, I'll tell you this. This is exactly what I would say a pastor should be doing with the scriptures. Now, obviously, not like just walking you through them and explaining, you know, using the exact word, same words that it says. I mean, there should be some explaining. We're going to see Jack do that here in a minute. There's actually uh, a few Greek words that he draws out and explains. Again, not that you can't do that yourself, but we've said this before, and I'll say it again early on in this uh, sermon review. Your pastor inadvertently by preaching is teaching you how to read the scriptures. So how they do it is how you will do it. And so one of the best ways I think that this can be um, taught well is that as a pastor, I'm reading through the scripture. I'm walking you back through it. I'm pointing things out that I think that you should also point out and look for when you're reading the scriptures yourself, which is key words and looking those words up and seeing if there's something there um, that's a bit deeper, that's exegetically working through the text, seeing what is there underneath the surface, right? He's, I'll give you, you know, I'll give it away because he's about to get to it, but we'll get to the word anchor and him really digging into what that looks like and what that means culturally and what that even means for us. And like, so you're unpacking those things. And as a pastor does that, he's teaching you how to do that. Right, and so that's why it's very important to have a pastor that exegetically walks through the scripture. That's why one of the re- one of the three things we look for is just that. Um, so obviously, right away, does Jack Hibb read the scripture? One hundred percent, he definitely hits that one off. You're going to see that a whole bunch. Uh, does he exegetically work through the scripture? Well, we're going to look at that. 
Obviously, I think I've already <laughs> sort of given that away. He does, but I want you to see how he does it, right? So what we're going to see is this pattern over and over again. Reading a verse, explaining that verse, applying, and then doing that over and over again, right? And so um, I think the last sermon we did, Shane, Shane Pruitt did the same thing. And that's, that's what we're looking for, right? As congregants, we're looking for not some... Uh, you know, philosophizing of the text as much as it is, what does the text say? What does it mean here within the context and the culture? And how does that at all apply to us if it does, right? Because there's some things you're going to read in the Old Testament that you're like, oh, that's a little weird. Um, there's going to be some things, honestly, now in the New Testament because of cultural shifts that you're going to read and go, oh, that's weird. And so you're going to have to be able to process through that with the lenses of the gospel to say, okay, that might strike me weird, but does it strike me weird because it's like it's something that God hasn't said to do? Or does it strike me weird because it's something God has said to do, but I'm being sanctified to be more like him, so it's, I'm kind of working through that process. So all that to say, you don't want to hear me talk more. Let's get back into what Jack is saying here uh, as he works through these verses. Man, listen, I don't say this to upset anybody, but for those of you who know, you know that this is true. If you have any Muslim friends, my heart goes out to them. I have Muslim friends. And listen, the God of the Quran does not have to keep his word. There's no promises that, that even demand to be trusted in. He's, you know what the word capricious is? He, the God of Islam is capricious. He's, he can change his mind, it's okay. And the Muslim doesn't know what he's going to be like on Thursday. That is the God that he worships. Don't ever confuse the God of Islam and the God of the Bible to be the same. They're, Muslims know that, by the way. You'll hear people say they're the same, but a Muslim will never say that they're the same. It's just all these other people running around who don't know what they're talking about saying it's, that it's the same. They're not the same. You have the assurance of Yahweh's promises. One thing I think is important here, um, and it's probably going to be different depending on where you're at, okay? So depending on where you're at in the country, there may be different ways to apologetically work through this, but basically that's what Jack is doing here, right? As a pastor, he's saying the people you interact with, what would be, and we, we talk about this sometimes, but as a pastor, what you're really trying to do is say, when I say this thing, what are they thinking? And then answer that question before the, as or before they ask it, right? So his whole point is, is that God doesn't change. You can trust on him. Right? Well, what about the other people that believe in different gods? Well, Jack pulls out Muslims and says, well, Muslims can't depend on Allah because Allah doesn't, hasn't bound himself to any promises in regards to never changing. In fact, they don't know how he's going to react to things. But believers do know who God is because he's revealed our, himself to us. He has bound himself to promises. You even have, uh, I, don't, I can't remember if Jack gets to this or not, but even, you even have when he makes the covenant with Abraham in the Old Testament, Abraham doesn't even participate in the covenant because God knows that Abraham can't keep it. So God says, I will keep it for us. And that's the kind of God we serve. This is the kind of uh, God that uh, the author of Hebrews is speaking about. Also, interesting fact, uh, he probably mentions this. I know this is part four. He doesn't mention it in this video. Uh, but Hebrews is a really good example of sort of a sermon within the first century written um, because it's very much written in a sermon-like way. Um, to people. So just interesting fact there. If you read through Hebrews all the way through, 
It's basically a sermon. And those promises are out to anyone and everyone, no matter what your upbringing might be. If you trust Christ tonight, you can be delivered from being a Baptist. If you trust Christ tonight, you can be delivered from Calvary Chapel. If you trust Christ tonight, you can be delivered from the Catholic Church or from the Methodist Church. You can be delivered from Mormonism or Islam or Judaism. Think about it. The God of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is simply asking you to take him at his word. And here's the great thing. There's no reason why we shouldn't, because he's kept his word all the way through. No one can ever read the Bible and say, ah, we got him right here. We found this loophole. Now, this is probably the skeptic in me. If I'm sitting, if I'm sitting in the audience right now, um, I know enough atheists or agnostics to say, oh, well, they would have, like, they would say there's inconsistencies in the scripture where God said one thing and then he did something else. I know that as a pastor, it's going to be really hard to in that moment be like, all right, let's break away from the sermon and deal with this argument and then we'll come back because that's going to take too long, especially when you already have a 50 minute long sermon. It may be a good idea, again, to just briefly mention that if you're to just if you're going to address the sort of God, you can't read the Bible and say God changes because there's going to be people that say I have and he does. So at least acknowledge that. And then if you've you know thought this through, if you've had this sermon planned out for a while, you could even almost have a document, a PDF link in their bulletin or on the screen that says, hey, here are some of the arguments against what I just said. But we've put out something that says here are the arguments and here are the scriptural like proofs for them, right? It's just like another factor on top because we live in a society right now where as soon as somebody hears that, like me, they go, well, I have friends that say they have proof that he does. And so you're already, again, that's anticipating what the congregation is going to hear. Uh, and it also helps us as congregants, if we're listening to sermons like this, say, yeah, but I have friends and you're not addressing that. And so that's where like a lot of, from a pastoral perspective, expecting what people are going to think and then giving them the information to deal with that with appropriate lenses. God made a mistake. No, nope, you're not going to find it. The second thing we saw last time is this, that the one and only promise keeper is the one who has set the times for himself. We saw that in verses 15 and 16. He's the God that goes to work, and he works the work until it's done. He will never give up, and he's not put off by time. He doesn't work according to our schedule, but he does work, and he finishes what he begins. Do not come to my house. Everything's almost done. <laughs> and almost done is an unfinished home, you know? Where's that wire go? I forgot. I don't even know what it's for anymore. Not God. You open your life to him, and he goes to work. You say yes to Jesus Christ, he comes in, and you may run around the world trying to run away from him or delay the process. He'll wait. He'll wait. And friends, it's best, as I said on Sunday, just quit. Just give up for this reason. He'll outweigh you, and he's got the time. You don't. Best to yield to him. He goes to work. We also learn in verse 16 that when he finishes a work, he finishes it. <laughs> Completely. I'm so glad about that. 
today this church, and I had a chance to preside over this service where we laid one of our own to rest, so to speak, bodily speaking, L.A. County Sheriff Deputy, now safe, finally safe in the arms of Jesus. And a lot of weeping, a lot of deputies packed out this place today. And um, it's amazing to be able to have, to stand here in front of such an intimidating crowd, but to stand here with the absolute authority of God's word that you can put on a badge or you can put on a uniform or you can put on makeup or you can put on a suit, but that doesn't make you who you are, that God knows who you are on the inside. And he loves you and I so much, my friend. God does not fall for the narrative of our day nor uh, the trending topic. He's not swayed by that. God is going to finish the work that he has begun in you because he knows exactly who you are. You may not even know who you are. He does. And it's a good thing. So we've talked about this before, right, as far as funerals, or not funerals, stories that are told in the sermons. Now, this is the first one we get, right, in this, in this sermon. And it's built in into this point of God finishing what he started, like setting the time and finishing what he started. And if you're new here, if you're, this is the first time you're maybe hearing this, if you're, if you're not new here, if you watch these a lot or listen to them, you know what I'm probably going to say. The question that comes then is, does this story add or take away from the point Jack is trying to make in the sermon? I would say it adds to it, right? So he could have went in and he, he actually will. I don't think this is the last time he mentions the funeral. He'll actually go into this a bit more. But he could have went into a large, elaborate story about a whole bunch of details about this person's life and a whole bunch of details about the funeral. And what he does is very tactfully, purposefully give um, very specific details about this person and about the funeral, mainly what was said at the funeral that then points back to the text and the point that he's making, right? The point being that... Um, that God has set times for himself and finishes the things that he started. And really pointing back to, though this funeral was a surprise to everyone and how it all ends, God isn't surprised by it and he finishes everything he started. So the work that he started in this officer's life that was a believer, he saw to completion. Uh, even though it was a, a tragic event, God is faithful in all of it. Um, and so I think this is a good example when you're, when you're saying, hey, how as a pastor, when you're saying, how can I give an example of this in a way that's impactful? I think this is a really good illustration in doing that um, because it's obviously impactful. It's very impactful, for example, for the people that are there because this officer actually was a part of this church. So they feel that a bit harder and they this point then sinks in a bit deeper, doesn't it? Because they knew this person the faithfulness of this individual, and the fact that they are now with Jesus. And so this point, out of all the points, becomes a lot more real for them because of that story. And that's that's the intent, right? It's not for laughs. It's not for um, it to be the main point of the sermon. It's so that it adds depth to what is being said and ultimately points back to the scripture uh, and brings out the reality of it. Thirdly, it is this we saw that He's a God that cannot change. He cannot change himself because of these things. It's impossible for God to transition or to morph. Can't happen. Verses 17 to 18, we learn that it's impossible for God to waver. 
He never wavers at his promises. He says them, and it's almost like this, people. It's almost as though God is begging us to take him up at his promise because he won't waver, and he wants you to learn that. And the things in life that you and I go through as brothers and sisters in Christ and children of God, he brings us through these fiery things to show us all along the way that he doesn't waver. He's just, like, he's just a beacon in, in, in the night. I mean, I, I, my mind right now is flashing to a, a, a point where Lisa and I were on vacation one time. There's this horrific storm, lightning and thundering going off, and uh, we were in Hawaii, and it was a pitch black night, and the storm, and the waves, and the crashing, and in the distance, in the black of the night, you couldn't tell the sky from the sea until lightning struck, and there was a boat in the distance. And I thought, and I pr- actually prayed for them. Because you know, the light of the boat would go up and then it would go away. And the light of the boat, you know, that's rough water people. And just to the north of us was the harbor. And hours later, that boat made it. But out in front of the harbor was a lighthouse, beacon. Can you imagine being on a storm-tossed sea and you see a light that's on shore? The feeling that must give. Incredible. God doesn't change. He doesn't waver. There's no transition in him. And listen, we finally saw last time is that it's impossible for God to refuse or to reject you. The Bible says that God will receive anyone who will come to him. And because he makes you a promise, he's gonna keep his word even though you and I may waver, he's going to keep his word. So church, mark this down if you would. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The Bible says, for I am the Lord, I change not. That's a great tattoo, isn't it? That word change, it's kind of funny, especially if you look it up and you can click on Hebrew online. You can click on and listen to it, and it's, and it's this, Shana, Shana. And when you press repeat, it's Shana, Shana. It sounds like a song. So this is a really interesting thing to do that I don't think I've seen any other church do. I've Obviously, if you've listened to these sermons before, you've heard me talk about pastors drawing out the Greek, drawing out the Hebrew, talking about the word meaning, all of that. Well, like we've talked about it before and how helpful and important that is and how there are obviously tools that you can use to do this in your own personal Bible study. I will link below uh, to the Step Bible app, as well as the Blue Letter Bible Interlinear Bible, as well as Logos Bible Software. If you want that, that's an affiliate link that helps the channel out if you actually buy that. The point is there are tools that enable you to do this, but I don't know if I've ever seen a church do this, where they've purposely put up the word, the Greek word, how to sound it out, the definition, right? Right on the screen, in case you're just listening and not watching, they have it in the negative, meaning to be unable, unable to be differ, or unable to be different, unable to disguise himself, unable to transfer, unable to vary or shift, right? This this is the idea that it's Jack is showing us, like, hey, this is what the Hebrew word means. If you don't believe me, here you go. And if you still don't believe me, you can look it up. And so this I think is really helpful because it is very much teaching preaching right? There, there, there's a way to preach 
and just make a lot of noise <laughs> and sound super smart and sound very convincing and get people riled up. And there's a difference between that and showing them, you know, the words that you're really drawing out to say, hey, what does it mean then to say God cannot change? What does it mean to give, you know, to, to say that? What is he saying in Malachi? Um, and that's something else, right? We've seen this before, so this is not just exclusively, you know, Jack, but giving cross-references, saying, hey, this is what the, the text is saying in Hebrews, but other places say this as well. So the writer of Hebrews is drawing from somewhere. Where is he drawing from? Well, he's probably drawing from Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. So um, the one thing I really want to point out, like if you're looking for like, as a pastor, hey, what's another thing I can do to make this, you know, more interactive with my congregation? I think this is a really good example of that. Uh, using the words on the screen to demonstrate, just to say, hey, look up the Greek, here it is. And it means this, I won't change. I won't change. Sometimes we need to hear that about our God. He will not change. And that word is, we have it, look, in the negative, meaning to be unable. When he says shana, it's unable for me to differ. Unable. To disguise myself, God is saying. It's unable. I'm unable to transfer, unable to vary or to shift. He is unable to transition or to morph into something else. He's the eternal God. And he's reliable. I wrote this down. I want you to hear it. He is who he is. And he is unable to become anything or anyone other than who he is. That's the God of the Bible. James chapter 1 verse 16 says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Isn't that a great term? With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So why is this unchanging fact about God so important to us? Friends, it's where we close it out. It's because it's his nature. Verses 19 to 20. The one and only promise keeper, listen to this, please mark it down. He must be to you and I what he is by nature. He is who he is, friends. But is he who he is in your life? Is he that God of the Bible? He must be this for us. We must, with all commitment as a believer... Take God at his word and grab on him in such a way for his nature's sake, his person's sake. This is extreme. It says in verse 19, you can look at it with me, or you can put it on the screen. You got it there? Look at this. This hope, you ought to circle that in your Bibles, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence Behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Quickly moving this out of the way, we've studied Melchizedek in the past. We'll touch on him again in the future. He'll be brought up again. Simply this, Melchizedek is the one who Abraham encountered after that great battle uh, where he went to rescue Lot and his tribe, really. And after Abraham fought and was victorious, on his way back, the king of Salem 
came out to greet Abraham. And the king of Salem, Salem is the root word to Yerushalayim. You know it as Jerusalem. And his name was Melchizedek. Some say it's a name, some say it's a title. It certainly is a title. But he's the prince of Salem, the prince of peace. That's why many people have talked about him as being a type of Christ. He certainly is a type of Christ. Some have even gone so far to say that he's a, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Maybe so. That's not the point tonight. We want to look at the nature of God. And in these last two verses, it's all important. Please mark this down. We must, you and I must. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Took a minute to stop that. Um, a couple of things I think are really important to point out here. One, let's assume, as you and I are likely, watching this sermon for the first time. So we've not been here for part one, two, and three. And as such, right, we haven't been here for when he's talked about Melchizedek before. Also, it's pretty likely that a lot of people, unless you've been reading through the Old Testament and hit the parts about Melchizedek, you've probably forgot about who that is or the importance or even what people think about Melchizedek, like he mentions. So the fact that Jack goes back, and again, some of this is going to be so duh to some of you, right? Like, of course you would do this. Just know, watch some of the other sermon reviews. This isn't so obvious that it's very important to do what Jack did here, right? Saying, hey, we've talked about it before, but let me just kind of give you a little background. Melchizedek is this guy, right? The only thing I would add was giving some sort of reference, like scriptural reference, so people could go back if they were interested and read, but that's, that gets a nitpicky thing. The fact that he did, though, mention and say, hey, if this isn't familiar to you, you know, this is the history. And so you're at least a little caught up, and especially if you're taking notes, which you 100% should all the time, then you've got that written down. And even though Jack doesn't give you the verse in re reference to Abraham and Melchizedek, you can Google that and find it, right? And then read up on it. So giving background is incredibly helpful here because now what, what Jack has essentially done is walked us through a couple of different layers of scripture. He's started with the Hebrews text that he's working through here in part four, given us some background information based on what the writer, writer of Hebrews is talking about. And giving us some, you know, if we want to do some homework on our own and go home and read about that encounter that he mentioned, we can do that too. And so he's really handed us quite a bit of information and some work if we want to do it so that we can fully understand what's happening here, even beyond what he's unpacking for us here. Take him by his nature, at his nature. And the first thing is this, is that he must be our ultimate church, please, stability. He's got to be our ultimate stability. Now, everybody, if we believe him or not, he is anyway. Are you with me? He is who he is. You're not going to change that. He is the ultimate stability in all of life. There's nothing greater. This hope, this definite statement about the hope, this is a hope. Watch this, everyone. This is a hope that we have as an anchor of the soul. These are very serious words, both sure and steadfast. How do you pack that kind of uh, theology into, into a sentence? Look at this. Let's unpack it together. The hope that is not being spoken of here is the hope that you are hoping happens. We, we all know what that kind of... Are you guys with me? You're very quiet tonight. <laughs> The hope of this world that you and I deal with is a hope like, oh man, I hope he shows up. 
That's not the word. Oh, I hope it comes through. That's not this word. Oh, you know, I have hope that everything, you know, the scan comes out okay. That's not this word. This word hope is a word that means actual, for real, factual. It's true. It is a hope that is arriving like on a track. You can see the light coming. You can hear the train's whistle. You can start to sense the track vibrating. The train's arriving. What is it? It's the train of hope. It's not that you're hoping that it arrives. You're steadfast. You're sure what God has said is true, and you can trust him just like you trust that train arriving in the station. It's going to happen. You don't have to waver. You don't have to doubt it. That's stability. The Christian in this world should be the most stable person. I'm not talking about, again, as I mentioned Sunday, your personality. You are, you are, you are who you are, personality. Okay? That's fantastic. We're talking about the stability of your soul and of your spirit, of your faith, of your belief. That he's steadfast. God is immovable. In what he says, you can trust him in it. And so the Bible says this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Remarkable statement, an anchor. So I did a little snooping around. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't have a boat, so I had to look this stuff up. Those of you who have a boat, I've discovered that you don't take your boat out without an anchor. <laughs> did you know that? No anchor, uh, no boat. You can say, no, I've got a boat. Technically, we should ask you, but do you have an anchor? Because I'm not getting on your boat unless you have an anchor. I have got to tell you, I've been on friends' boats, and I've never stopped to ask them, do you have an anchor? Now, one of the things he's going to do, hold on a second. I assume they... <laughs> Sorry, there we go. I just, I had to unpause. Not that this face is much better. If you're watching and not listening, I paused it on his face, and it looked weird. So I had to change it. So here we are. What Jack is going to do here, and I tell you this beforehand because I think it's going to be helpful, especially for you if we're just listening as congregants to listen to it. It's going to be very helpful, I think, in regards to just like, hey, how should we, you know, what should we be looking for in stories? But as pastors, also an example, again, of another story, right? So this is going to be a bit more detailed, a bit more um, involved, I suppose, in the funeral story. But what we are going to see, I think, is a good example of taking information that you're trying to use to point back to the anchor analogy that the writer of Hebrews is using, but presenting that information in a way that's accessible. And what I mean by that is he's, he's talking about, hey, I don't have a boat. If you're one of my friends and you do have a boat, or if you happen to get on a boat, this is why anchors are important. So what he's doing is he's not just giving us a didactic definition of what an anchor is supposed to do, but giving us examples of what an anchor does and why it's important, but putting it in a practical and accessible way, right? This is, this is what communication looks like, effective communication, because now you're giving people information in a way that they can understand it, but it's not like over the top, right? Storytelling is over the top. It's, in, it's entertainment value. Teaching is giving people information that's engaging, but accessible and helps them remember it. So there is a difference there. And that's what I want you to listen for, right? When we're listening to what he's about to say about an anchor, because it goes on for a minute, which is why I wanted to stop it before we get into it. But listen for, for what I'm talking about as far as 
educational teaching in regards to this? I had an anchor. Today, there's a lot of assumptions. The church that you attend, if it's not this church, if you go somewhere else, how do you know they have an anchor? We ought to paint an anchor on the building. No, wait, that wouldn't be an anchor. Maybe we should just put an anchor on the building. An anchor. So this is what I learned. It's the most important part of the ship. I never would have thought of that. I would have thought that the restaurant was the most important part of the ship. It's the anchor. And uh, did you know? Because uh, if a ship loses its power, it's in danger of being put adrift without an anchor. Did you know that if a ship loses its power, it can drop anchor? But it's got to have an anchor. If it doesn't, it's adrift. And I looked into that, and I love cruise ships. I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise ship. Lisa and I discovered them too late in our lives. We wish we would have gone sooner. It's marvelous. But then I saw on YouTube a cruise ship that lost its power. And when it dropped its anchor, it was in too deep of water in the Pacific for the anchor to hit the bottom. It was adrift. And when it was adrift, guess what happened? It was getting hit by the waves at all kinds of different angles. And I turned it off because I want to go on a cruise again someday. And (laughs) I don't need that kind of filth in my life. (laughs) Did you know that if a ship loses its rudder, it's in danger of being aimless without an anchor? A ship can lose its rudder if it's got an anchor. You know the rudder, right? Did you know that if a ship loses its control surfaces where nobody, no, no uh, further can be operated from uh, the control room, that it's in danger of being washed ashore without an anchor? Anchor is the most important thing. And I want you to know tonight that the promises of God is the anchor of your soul. You, I don't care how young or old you are, I don't care how poor or how rich you might be. I don't care what ethnicity you may be. All of that is irrelevant. If you don't have an anchor, I want to ask you, why not? And get one quick. And that one I want you to get is the promises of God, but that's a faith decision on your part. You need an anchor for your soul. In this service today, I announced right from the start, I welcomed the family, I welcomed all of the police officers, and I said, let's just get this straight right here, right from the beginning. This is a celebration. This is not a funeral. I've done funerals. That's when I do, that's when I do services for unbelievers. Those are funerals. But when a Christian graduates, it's a celebration. And the mom and dad spoke, the brother spoke, the sister spoke, the cousin spoke. And they all had faith in the Lord Jesus and they were quoting scripture and they were crying with hope. And they, they, listen, they pointed right down here where her body was in the casket and I pointed out to the people, let's all recognize this, what the Bible says, only her body is in that casket. She's long gone from here. She's in the presence of the Lord Jesus rejoicing. How can we be so sure? Because God has said so. Now, I do want to bring you back to uh, just a, 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 a speaking technique that he just did. This is, again, if you're a pastor, one of the things that you may or may not know or may, or may not utilize is 
something Jack just did. So as he was working through pretty early on in the sermon, he brings up the funeral of the individual that was had that day in the church. He then goes on for quite a while here, uh, probably 10, maybe 15 minutes, talking about other things as he goes through the scripture. He then gets to this passage about the hope and hope being, or hope being our anchor, and then brings us back to the story of the funeral that we, he's previously told us about. Now, what that does, just as a communicator, is it, it ties this all together. So we as the, the audience, the congregation, those that are listening, are engaged in what's happening. We, oh yeah, we remember that, right? It, it, it almost begs us to, to listen and be like, well, you know, if all this ties together, I need to be attentive for all of it. Um, and it's not like, again, it's not like, it's more of a subconscious thing that, that, that is happening because we're like, oh, I remember that story. And then it's really tying it all together alongside of what we're doing in Hebrews here, walking us alongside and say, well, if the author of Hebrews is saying this, this is what it practically looks like in the lives of believers. So when the author of Hebrews says, we have a hope that is our sure anchor. Well, what does that look like practically, right? Well, for us, that looks like what we witnessed at the funeral, right? This reality that God holds everything in his hands, right? He, um, He's the one that sets the time frame and he finished what she starts and he is our hope and our anchor. And practically speaking, that looks like the young lady that was laid to rest today because her family has that hope and that anchor in Christ as she did as well. And it's really just this tying of all things together in a really impactful way after explaining, hey, if you don't know what, I think you know what an anchor is, but if you don't, this is why it's important. And then building all that together. We're not arrogant. We're not talking ourselves into this. God has said it. He must keep his word. And that brings profound stability into your life. I mean this with all of my heart. This is no hype. This is no joke. In your life, if there's anybody in your life, I don't care who it is. I don't care what your relationship is. Listen, I'll go, I'll go this far. Maybe you came in here tonight and you are uh, uh, Susie and Billy and you're, you're shacking up sex together, you're not married, all this stuff, but you decided to go to church. Listen, we're glad you're here. Watch this. You need Jesus. You need Jesus as much as I need Jesus. Here's the thing. Open up the Bible. The two of you, open up the Bible. Now, I'm going to get mail on this, but this is how life really happens. We need to be patient like this. If they walked in here tonight, because God led them here, or if a prostitute Ubered over here tonight, and she's in service, or in this day and age, he or she is in service. Open up your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, after service, we'll give you one. Go home and read it out loud. Just start reading it. Billy and Susie can go home. You open up the Bible, start reading it out loud. Go to John's Gospel, start reading it to each other. Read verse 1, let her read verse 2. You read verse 3, and let, let me talk. Listen. That is going to do more to transform their lives than you and I saying, how could you do that? Shame on you. They already know they have shame on them. They know that. The Holy Spirit's speaking to them. That's why they're here tonight. Go read your Bible. And he will transform you. The option is unacceptable. The option is, we shout to you, thou shalt not. And then you'll get in line and keep the rules and your heart will never be with God, but it will be with rule keeping 
and you'll miss heaven altogether. But when you open up the word of God, that power of his word will transform your life. Why? Because every single one of us, as the Bible says, that we walk, as it were, on a slippery path, and in due time, their foot shall slip. But God says, I want you to be like a deer, a hind on high places. You ever see goats or ibex or... Now, we don't have ibex in America as far as I know, but we have the Rocky Mountain goat and we have the, the ram. If you've ever been out to the Colorado River or the Mojave Desert, I don't know if you've ever seen those rams. First of all, they're extremely hard to see because they look like a gigantic rock. They seriously do. See, that's a funny looking rock. It's got horns on it. <laughs> I don't know how those things live. 120 degrees in the middle of nowhere, and they're massive. And God sustains them. The book of Job tells us this, but you see such an environment, you see such a setting, you see such a thing, and you've got to stop and wonder, and they move around and they jump from stuff that you and I would never do. <laughs> and you're certain that they're going to they're, they're just fall to their death, and it's like they're glued as they run on the mountainside. And they're stable. Why? Because they're in their element, right? Are they not? If you are here tonight or if you're watching right now, if you're not trusting in God to keep his word to you, you're not in your element. You were created for the word of God. That's why you're not happy. That's why you're searching and going places and you're not finding anything. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Isn't that a song by somebody? I think. Huey Lewis said, you know, I want a new drug. I loved when that song came out. I was a Christian, Huey. Real quick, I do want to interject because I've kind of let him go on for a while. This part, basically starting back at the, if there's two people in service and you guys are shacking up together part, sort of diverges. Now, I don't know, let me know. Again, in the description below, if you don't think he diverges from his main point here. I don't see kind of where we get from anchor and sure hope to, you like, you know, if you are here and you don't know Christ, you need to know him because he can be your steadfast, like he can be your steadiness. Maybe he's relying on the steadfast hope part. I don't see him connecting those two. It's just some sort of like an interjection. Again, not a bad interjection, right? Well, basically what he's telling people is if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him because you were created for him. And that's why things don't seem to be clicking. 100% agree with him. Don't know where that necessarily ties in with what we're looking at. Because so far, what we've talked about is in Hebrews chapter 6, specifically verses 19 and 20, talking about God not changing, God being our steadfast hope and our anchor, um, basically going out of the text that he read at the very beginning. He read quite a bit more, but our main text here is basically starting at verse 19 in Hebrews chapter 6. We have this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the in, inner places behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, he's already read that and he's kind of working through the words and the verses here. But I, I don't know, I, at best, I suppose he's, he's trying to tell them that Jesus needs to be your steadfast hope. Um, it just, to me, seems a little clunky. Now, again, I don't disagree with him. I think this is a great place to interject 
this idea of, you know, hey, if you don't know Jesus, you need to because you can have this hope. Uh, but I do want to point that out. Like, I just feel like this is sort of like we just interjected it out of nowhere. But that could just be me. Lewis in the news was a big deal, and that was a big hit. And I was a Christian. I was listening to that song, and I knew exactly what Huey was asking for. I wanted to yell right through my eight-track cassette <laughs> and say, Huey, you don't even know it, buddy, but you're crying for Jesus, and you don't even know it. You want a new drug that won't make you sick, he said. I want a new drug, the one, one, doesn't, one that doesn't give me a headache. No, you need stability in your life, and Jesus is that very thing. I'm going to give you some scriptures. Please write them down if you would. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 tells us, having faith, two words, what a profound statement. Having faith and a good conscience. Those go hand in hand. Which some having rejected, the word is cast away, cut loose. Think of the anchor, friends. Concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Wow, 1 Peter 1.19 says shipwreck. When you reject faith, you become shipwrecked in your life. By the way, the word shipwreck implies that they break up. They break up, they break apart. Their life becomes splintered and shattered. So I want to give you some stabilizing promises. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 18, listen to this. I'm going to stress it, if, if you don't mind. And the Lord will... Deliver me from every evil and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You ought to write that down or take a picture of it. God is the one that he's leaning on to say he's going to deliver me. I'm trusting that the Lord will deliver me from every evil work. That's going to become more dear to us as the years or as the months come upon us. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's a great promise. Are you waiting for God to move in your life? Don't become impatient. Wait for him to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Wait for him. John chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, my father who has given them to me, the believer, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. How's that for security? Does that make you feel good? I like that. That's stable. That's stable. What about this? Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. Listen, there's a qualifier for uh, to those who love God, do you love God? To those who are called according to his purposes, do you know you're a Christian? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To One thing that I, I do want to point out as he's doing this, because I, I don't want to forget, we are we have about 20 minutes left in the sermon, just so you, kinda, so you guys have an idea of where we're at. So we have about 20 minutes left in the sermon itself. I thank you for sticking around for this near hour so far. Just hang in there. I think that I think you'll find the rest of this beneficial. But what's happening here, and what I kind of want you to see in the sermon build is Jack goes back, gives us the context that leads us up to today's verses. Now again, this is part four. 
but again, we're talking about the sermon build. So he's covered these parts before, but he gives us the context to lead us up to today. He then goes through all the things that you can rely on God for. We're talking about the promises of God. God is faithful to his word. He sets himself times and finishes the things he started. He won't change. He won't reject you. He is stable. And that leads us into today's text that we've already read, right? And as Jack goes about breaking down what our hope is in, it's like an anchor for us. It's our stable anchor giving us some texts that he just did and encouraging people to write those texts down, right? The assumption being that you'll reference them later and giving those texts as sort of stabilizing text in times of trial and, you know, trauma. And so that when those do come, you can remember Hebrews chapter six, verses 19 and 20, that Jesus is our hope and our stable anchor, right? And he's going to go into the rest of the verse here in a little bit, which only impacts that more. But he gives them those verses for stability. He has referenced back, and again, I said that it's sort of out of place. I still think it kind of is, but it's a good place to interject it, that if you don't have this stability, you can have this stability in Jesus. So, so far, he's effectively worked us through Scripture, giving us, I mean, we have half a dozen or more verses that he's already given us as supporting cross-reference texts to other things that connect to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. And so, so far, this is very packed full of scriptures, but he's done a good job of dividing them up. Hey, these are stabilizing scriptures. Hey, these are connective scriptures about God not changing. Hey, these are, you know, his faithfulness ones and really working through breaking that down. So by the time we've got to this point, again, 30 minutes into a 50 minute sermon, there should be this confidence for believers that God is faithful in finishing what he starts and he is stable and can be trusted. And if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, as Jack has already stated, there should be at least this question in your mind, do I have stability in anything as he talks about him having stability in Jesus? And that's his point. If you don't have stability, you can have stability in someone that is faithful and doesn't change and is, it can be your anchor. And so all of this is tied together really, really well by digging in pretty deeply to verse 19. Honestly, we haven't really moved too much. I mean, there's there were some contextual verses that he, you know, used to bring us up to this. But honestly, almost all of this 30 minutes has been pretty much digging into verse 19 and what that looks like and means and really unpacking that in a pretty f- sufficient way. Obviously, he's uh, and we'll talk about this at the end, but he has reproved, he has rebuked, he has exhorted already. I'm sure he's going to continue to do that as we get into verse 20. But I just want to bring us up sort of what he's built us up to this point. And really within the sermon, sort of the idea of the feel that we should have about who God is and how faithful and stable he is in our lives, regardless of what's happening. So let, let's keep going. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the first fruit among many brethren. He is the one up front. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Listen to this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let's be honest. You guys, verse 31. It, what shall we say then? If God is for us, who can be against us? I'll give you, I'll, I can give you a thousand names of people. Do you know, don't you know there are people against you? It's not that. If we, if we love Jesus, no one's going to be against us. No, the exact opposite's true. But this promise announces to us 
what then shall we say to these things that were just said, the previous verses, if God's for us, who can be against us? Meaning, you can line up the entire universe that's against you. And they have no influence or power over you unless you give it to them. But why would you do that? Keep your eye on him, the Lord, who's stable. And he's, he'll see to it that your ship arrives in safe harbor. He's the anchor of our souls. Man, I love that. Secondly is this, approval. We must, he must be our ultimate approval. God is our approval. One thing that I haven't mentioned yet that I, I should have because I've thought about it a thousand times, but I'm pretty sure, if I, let's say this, if I had to guess, Jack Hibbs's church very likely has handed out uh, some sort of bulletin and then sort of has like fill in blanks. And that's what's going across the screen here. If you happen to be watching this instead of listening to it, like the things that are going across the screen, I'm, I would, I would be very positive in saying that are probably fill in the blanks on an outline that, you know, you've been given. Um, most people, like, I don't know. I don't know. Let me know what you, what, if you keep these or not in the, in the comments below. If your church does like a fill in the blank type of thing, do you keep those? Yes or no? Let me know in the description below. Because I found that like the structure that I talk about with the sermon review guide, I'm much more apt to keep that. But I know some people's brains operate, obviously a lot of people, nobody's brain is the same. So some of you may be more apt to like fill in the blank stuff. If that's the case, let me know. I think that'd be very helpful for other pastors to know as well. Is that helpful or distracting to you? Like, do you find that beneficial? Do you keep them or do you throw them away? Like, I'm just curious. That verse says in verse 19, and which, speaking of he, enters the presence behind the veil. It's, it's speaking about Jesus Christ being our high priest who enters in behind the veil. Church, listen, this is fun. And I'm, I'm gonna go quick because we have to wrap this up. It's this, when, when Jesus is announced here as the one that goes behind the veil into the presence, are we talking about a temple in Jerusalem on earth? If we are, we're in trouble. Thank God Jesus Christ never entered into the temple in Jerusalem as high priest. You want to know why? Because that temple was only a shadow of that which is to come. That temple was, was made by man. There is a temple that is eternal. And the Bible says that that temple ultimately is God Almighty himself. And the Bible says that Christ is the light of that temple. The Bible says there's an Ark of the Covenant, not Indiana Jones style, not Moses style. Did you know that the real Ark, the real one, not the one that was in Jerusalem or in the wilderness of Sinai, the real Ark is in heaven. The one that Moses made is a type of the one that Moses saw in the vision God gave him of heaven. Why is that important? Because on top of the mercy seat is what? What is poured on top of the mercy seat, class? Blood. Whose blood? Jesus' blood. Where? Heaven. No wonder why the Bible says regarding your salvation, this is the way I read it, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The greatest treasure you can own and possess is your salvation. It's not in some earthly vault or some temple. Now, one thing I want to point out there, not necessarily to his point he just made, but what you saw happen. Like, I let me know again. 
if this is your experience. What I've seen in, in, in older pastors like Jack, like more seasoned pastors, if you don't like the word old, um, is their ability to connect and unpack the Old Testament in relation to the New Testament. That is something that does not often happen anymore. I mean, there's certain other pastors, I happen to make a film on one of them, that does like basically never references the Old Testament and um, kind of downgrades when they talk about it. But the point is that Jack here is doing what a lot of more seasoned older pastors do, which is saying, hey, this Old, connect, old Testament, what it talks about, connects to the new. Like there's a lot of imagery and types and shadows. And that doesn't happen a lot anymore. In fact, there's some pastors that will reference it, but then analogize everything. Like everything is an analogy. Everything is a, this is you, da, 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 but... It, it, it's, it's all motivation almost always. And what we see here Jack do, and obviously there's some theology and things that you may disagree with, or I may disagree with, with him in regards to like some of the finer points. But the idea is that he's referencing the Old Testament to help understand the new, which is how the apostles and early church understood that to occur as well and held very closely to understanding and teaching about the Old Testament. And so that's something that I think we've lost a little bit of in some you know, churches that are ran by younger individuals that are less seasoned. Um, but what we saw Jack here do, I think, is helpful and something that if you are a part of a church with a seasoned pastor is a is a benefit to you. It's in heaven. When Christ rose again from the dead, when he entered into the holy of holies of heaven, the Bible tells us that he entered with blood. Think of that. That's awesome. Because no moth, no rust, no thief can break in and steal that. By his sacrifice, we have approval. Beginning with Adam and Eve, they sinned, refused to repent, by the way. Remember this. You know, we can't point fingers too firmly at them. They were, our, this, they were the best shout. They were the best of us, Adam and Eve. And they, they, they listen, they sinned and they began to blame everyone. The fingers are going this way, every which way, blaming every which other one. And then ultimately they just blamed God. Adam blamed God because he said, it's the woman you gave me. The woman said, don't look at me, it's the snake. And somebody said, the poor snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Anyway, <laughs> um, but all the blame, all the blame going around. You know, if Adam and Eve would have said, God, please forgive us. Please forgive us. Did you know that we would have been in paradise right now? So think about this. When God said, look. I, I, mm, I don't want to dig too deeply into that because I feel like I would have to really think through that. That seems like a statement. By the way. Transparency. I, I did not get this far. Apparently, I only got to about 30 minutes. I didn't get this far. So I don't know what anything is happening after this. So we're both running blind here. But that statement, if Adam and Eve would have just repented, we would be in paradise now. I don't know. I'm going to have to go back and read Genesis. That's a weird statement. Like, I would definitely take down that as a note so that when I got home after service, I'd be like, I need to read into this and really think about it because I'm not... Sh my in My gut says... My gut says no, but I would have to read it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I've even heard of that theory before. I don't know. That's going to bug me now. Now I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> Let's keep going. Listen, here's the deal. Here's what I'm going to do. Universally, we, we don't often think about this. God says, I'm going to cover your nakedness, which was an uh, emanation of their sin. 
What did he cover them with? Skin. 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 Where did God get the skin? Did he snap his finger and get some skin? Something had to die. It doesn't say in the Bible, but I bet it was a lamb. Abraham offers up Isaac on Mount Moriah. What does God do? He provides a ram. The Bible's very clear in Leviticus 17, 11. The Bible says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. This is a pretty cool statement, you guys, because this, this is only like about four or 5,000 years old. Did you know that science took a long time to catch up to that scientific fact that Moses uttered? Because it wasn't Moses uttering it. It was God himself. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. You can research that later. They used to think it was in the, in the, um, in the air. But the blood is the transportation system of life. Without blood, you have no life. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Who says this? God says this. There's nothing more precious in life. One thing, before I forget, because it will be a thought that goes away if I don't mention it now. That whole thing when a pastor says, you can look it up later, Here's what I would encourage, and I say this as someone that is terrible at doing this, right? So just call me a hypocrite all day because it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a, a lie to do so. Whenever, and this comes to preparation. This this honestly just comes down to preparation, and that's why I am terrible at it. But I'll just here's your thing, right? So here's a tip that I'm going to tell you to do and try to do myself, but probably forget. As a pastor, if you're going to make statements like this, right? So assuming that that note about Leviticus 17, 11 was in his notes about the life being in the blood and not the air and him having done some reading or research and found that, you know, people used to believe it was in the air and now, you know, everybody knows it's in the blood, like Moses said, give us, especially if you have a fill in the blank, a, a, a reference point, right? A point that says, hey, this is where you can, this is where I read it and you can go read it too. Like some sort of citation. Do you want to know something that uh, more progressive Christians are better at doing than conservative Christians are? Not always, not, not always, but I've noticed often they're better at citing sources. Now, we may not agree with those sources, but the point is they're citing them, right? So you can do research on them. So you can, you can do the, you don't have to look it up yourself. It's already there. And that's something that I think we should definitely do. Bible-believing believers do, which is cite the sources that we're referencing in the sermon, right? So if you do have a guide, for example, that I talked about before, a PDF that says, hey, you know, God doesn't contradict himself. Here are the examples that people say he does. Here are the biblical answers, right? You cited it. Will people tear it apart and disagree with you? Yes. But is it a tool that people can use if they're curious? 100%. Same thing here. I did this research, Jack would say. They used to believe life was in the air. It's actually in the blood. Here's the cited scientific source paper that said that, just so you have it. Will most people use that? Probably not. But will there be a handful of people that will and that find it helpful and it only took you a couple more minutes to put that in you know the citation sermon notes because you've already read it anyway yeah so will a majority of people probably utilize some of this stuff no the majority of people won't but there will be people that are curious and you will help them trust you and what you're saying more by actually giving them citations i know it seems like a small thing 
But I think, especially in the world we live in that is full of skeptics, full of people that can Google something as you're preaching at them, that sort of stuff is helpful. If you know this, then blood. When your, when your friend's in an accident and they need blood, you rush to the hospital to give them your blood. You're giving them life. There are campaigns, give blood, give life. Of course. Transfusion, save a life. Blood. The approval that you and I have before God is by and is based on the blood of Jesus. It's amazing. So here's what's, here's what's fantastic to me. On this side of the veil, because the Bible talks about him going through the veil and into the presence. On this side of the veil, watch this. On this side of the veil, there seems to be life. On this side of the veil, on the outside of the veil, there seems to be life. There's noise. There's, there's life. There's street traffic. There's food, there's life, there's living on this side of the veil. We think we're alive on this side of the veil. The Bible says that Jesus, just like the high priest in the Old Testament, would pass through the veil, right, into the Holy of Holies. In Jerusalem, the high priest would do that once a year with the blood of the sacrificial lamb. God said, I don't want the high priest coming into my presence without blood, both for himself and for the nation. He needs to have blood. And the blood's got to be of an innocent lamb. Perfect lamb. On this side of the veil, seems like life is going on. Who, who notices? Life, listen, life has to be given to enter into the presence of God. On the other side of the veil, there's blood. There's a sacrificed animal. Looks like death to me. But it's the death of one. On this side of the veil, everybody's living it up. But the Bible says, if we live for pleasure, we're dead while we yet live. We think we're alive. You look at Hollywood and you look at all of the, 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 the world of Hollywood, the world of Fifth Avenue, New York, life, living it up, woo! The silly magazines. I just went through a store yesterday and I walked through the, you know, the line and they got all these dumb magazines. I'm sorry, they're just dumb. I don't care about this person's, this person's new diet that she's discovered. <laughs> and, and you can buy the magazine. I don't care. And did you know that Brad just broke up with somebody else now? <laughs> Who cares? In my lifetime, there used to be magazines called, um, like me, but it started out with Life. Remember Life magazine? And then it was, then there was us, and then there was like me, or myself. It's kind of funny when you look at the evolution of magazines because now it's all this. Hey, you can live forever, and you look around this world and you say, "Why would I want to live forever in this world?" There's a cover of a magazine that Chris Rock, you can look it up. Chris Rock is standing, he's all dressed in white, and it says something about he, is, uh, he has found immortality, Chris Rock. Did you know that? The comedian. What's going on here? Okay, to be fair, I haven't looked that up. I mean, clearly, I haven't looked that up. But my guess would be that they, Chris Rock finding immortality isn't in the same sense that Jack is talking about immortality. It's probably immortality via his work, right? The work that he's done in comedy and film.
So that's a bit different. I don't care. The world on this side is celebrating. What, I ask you? It looks like it's alive, so it thinks. On this side of the veil looks like death. On this side is where the real life is. The world looks at the Christian and says, you poor things, you have no idea what you're missing out on. Oh man, orgies, drunken brawls, fist fights, pillaging of war, you know, fighting, uh, cheating on each other. Oh, it's fantastic, you should join us. <laughs> no. They think we're missing out on stuff. What they forget is we used to be just like them. And then God rescued us out. How did he do that? He brought us through the veil. He brought us through the veil into his presence. Some, something had to die, but that something was Jesus. Jesus died, and he brings us through the veil based on his sacrifice. One thing, and again, it's just me pointing this out. When he said he brings us through the veil, right, that's a powerful point of salvation. But the, the congregation, from at least the miking that I heard, a lot of them were clapping. Now, Beside the point, you're not preaching to get attention, but when a congregation or audience responds like this, that means you have engaged them, right? So my point about Jack building his sermon in such a way really has engaged them along the way, all the way through all the passages, him using stories as sort of this, um, this way to explain the passages, not to distract and detract from them. And they're still with him. So when he makes this point about Jesus bringing us through the veil, they know and love Jesus and therefore they respond in that way because they're, they're not just listening to listen. They're engaged in what he's saying and understands the point he's making. And that's good communication. That's why it's so silly for you to say, I can't come to Jesus because I, I, I'm, I'm a big sinner. Oh, stop it. You're, you're, you're trying to impress yourself. It doesn't work. You need to come to him. You need to go through the veil. But listen, there's only one way to do that, and that's through him. Amen. And that's where we end. Verse 20 where the forerunner has entered in for us. Forerunner has entered in for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Write this down and we close. He must be our ultimate passage. So with our Bud's ministry outreach to the men of the church, one of the things that we're gonna be learning is how to teach our children or to walk our children as dads through rites of passage. We've kind of lost that in the West. In the Middle East, for example, in Israel, there's the, there's the bar mitzvah for the young lady and there's the bar mitzvah for the young man. And it's a big deal, it's awesome and it's beautiful, but we have nothing in the West. What do we do? What do we do when somebody turns maybe 13 years of age or 10 years of age or 16 years of age and so we, we want to have, have like a commissioning and, a, and an actual son, you know, son, daughter, you are now this age and we celebrate this moment in your life and, and here are the friends and these are the other dads that are standing with you and just something, you know, give them a sword or something. You know what I mean? I, I, I want to point this out and I know this is a very long sermon review so I appreciate if you're still with us during this. What he's pointing out though 
And the fact that the church is actively thinking about how to do this well is important because I'm not going to go into it, but we live in an age in which they're just an just an adolescence that's allowed to go on all the way up until the 30s and 40s, where 30 and 40 year olds are acting like teenagers. And part of the reason that that is the case is there are no definitive breaks as there are in other cultures in which you set a, a young boy down and say, you are now expected to act this way. Like you are passing from childhood to adulthood and I'm here to help you and these other men are here to help you, but you're no longer a child and you don't have that anymore for a variety of different reasons. Some of these hustles don't even have fathers in them to sit them down to say you're no longer a boy or a girl. You are a man or a woman and you were expected to ask, uh, act in, in such a way. And we are here to help you and to guide you and to teach you. And you don't have that. And it's really encouraging that Jack's Church has a program, Titus 2, in place for older men and older women to train younger men and younger women. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. That there's a rite of passage. What does that mean? That I've, go, I've gone from here to here. Well, you're 18 now. What does that mean? They may not be 18, by the way. Just because the law says they're 18 doesn't mean they're 18. Only a parent would know that. But that might be kind of crazy talk here in California. We'd have to ask the governor how mature our kids are. <laughs> but parents know this. I'm going to read something to you that's absolutely thrilling. Matthew 27:50. Matthew 27:50. Listen to this. Jesus is on the cross. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. That means Jesus died when he said he was going to die. All right, I'm dying now. I'm all done. Paying the, I'm all done on the cross, carrying everyone's sin and making atonement for all of man. And at, when Je the second Jesus was done paying the price for all of mankind's sin, he said, spirit, be gone. I'm done. He yielded up his spirit, verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top. From top to bottom. That thing was somewhere between six to eight inches thick, woven material in the vicinity of about 30 feet high. It's torn, and the earth quaked, and the rock split open. I love that. Wow. And the graves were opened. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, one of the cool things to see happening is that graves opened up and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, that's what believers call death, were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, that is also... They went into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and appeared to many. Can you imagine people so, hey, wow, aren't you Uncle John from five months ago? Yeah. Hi, how you doing? Can you imagine? Just at the death of Jesus. It's almost like a foretaste. It's almost like a primer to the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all of us. When Jesus died on the cross, people began to pop out of the grave. Let's all stand for this, because we have to end. Because you have to, 
you have to, there's a lot of stuff out in the courtyard that you guys are going to want to enjoy tonight. You're standing and we're ending, but this is a whopper of a verse. So Romans chapter 8. You heard part of it a moment ago, but check this out. Romans 8, verse 28. Follow along with me, everybody. Just take this in. Let this wash over you. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew. We read that earlier, remember? He also predestined. All of this is in the past tense. This is God's promises. They've been given to you to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn forerunner prototype among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? Watch this, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Amen. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Amen. Who is he who condemns? Is somebody condemning you? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God? Who also makes intercession for us? Jesus talks to his father about you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, friends, listen, this is the Bible here. Forgive me. Shall tribulation, I don't make enough money. I don't have enough friends. I got sick. Hey, let's be honest. Cancer, COVID, fear, fill in the blank. What is it? There's no out, you know. You can't come later and say, well, I have an out. I have a pink slip for this one. No, you don't. No, no, you don't. Tribulation? Nope. Distress? Nope. Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Or sword? Does somebody have a sword in your throat right now? The Bible says, that's not a problem. This world's only temporal. God's got it all taken care of for you, believer. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. He's talking about the ministry. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded. This is the key. This is personally, verse 39 or verse 38 is, is in my opinion, the key to life. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, that's demonic activity, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, that includes me, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Father, I pray that you would galvanize us as you desire by the power of your Holy Spirit. It is your will that we trust you because you made us promises. May we go forth tonight in these promises. May we not be fearful. May we not be timid. May we not be in any way, shape, or form silenced by a world that is dying. Okay, so it looks like that is the end, right? So let's go back. Now, before we get into um, breaking down, I'm going to show you my notes. It's <laughs> There's a lot here, guys. There's a lot. Um, I do want to address what I told you I was going to address from the beginning of this video. Like, 
my the first sermon review I did on Jack Hibbs and this one. Now, the first one basically wasn't even a sermon review because he didn't really preach anything. And a lot of people are like, you know, this is just him giving advice. Here's my point. Whenever a pastor stands up, uh, and this is why that, that, that review is still up. That's why it's not coming down. That's why you can hate it all you want. The point is when you stand up, like if this is your first, if that video was your first impression as it was of mine, of Jack Hibbs, you kind of go like, wow, this guy, I don't, I wouldn't suggest him because he's not, not a lot. Of, there's no hardly scripture used in that at all. Now juxtapose it with what we just watched, right? Somebody walking us through scripture, expounding deeply on what that means. That's incredibly more helpful. And you can definitely say, hey, like Jack Hibbs, if, you, if you're going to listen to him, seems like a real solid dude. Like, I don't know about the intricate details of his theology, but he seems like he handles scripture really well from this one, which is why I want to be really careful. Like anytime I get up to say anything or any video I make that I try to reference it back to scripture, which, hey, Full disclosure, I'm not gr the greatest at sometimes. This is why this is a learning experience for all of us. Now, this sermon, let's go over it, right? Did he read the scripture? A hundred percent, of course, you can't miss that. He's working through scripture expositionally. Did he expound on the text? As I've already said, he expounded a whole bunch on the text. We'll look at that in my notes here in a minute. Uh, did he give application? I think in those stories, especially with the one of the funeral, there was some very valid application as well as just the general overarching uh, application of being steadfast and anchored in Christ. And then he preached the gospel. Yeah, he did at the end there when he was referencing uh, those scriptures. Now, again, it wasn't Jesus' perfect life, death, uh, bodily, uh, death on the cross for our sins and atone for our sins and resurrection from that. Like it wasn't boom, 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 but it, it was this, you need to follow Jesus. Why? Because he died and he rose. And so let's go to my notes. There's a lot. We're not going to be able to get through all of them. I'm not going to keep you any longer. You've already been here an hour and a half and I very much appreciate you. So let's look at my notes. There's a lot here. Let me get rid of that. So the one thing that I really want to point out, which you can't even see, but, um, there it is. It's at the very bottom. Keep your eyes on Jesus, right? That was the thing that I think was the overall message. Now, I do have this red letters here, which just said could have been shorter. There's a lot of information packed into this 50 minutes. I definitely felt myself at like the 40 minute mark sort of having to focus because there was so much going on. That would be my one critique, if any, of this sermon review of this sermon is that there was almost too much information, right? I mean, you can tell by my nose. I'm trying to keep things straight here and the verses he used as far as shipwrecked and committed and anchored versus the stabilizing passage at the top left. And then over here, when it's talking about Jesus as our high priest and at the bottom, when he's talking about verse 20 is, you know, Jesus and the blood and like there, there's a bunch. Now that's not bad. Again, if you're taking notes, um, I wish I would have like, again, if I, if I would know that Jack Hibbs gives that much information every Sunday, I would have probably structured my my notes a bit more to give me the space I needed, but they're still readable to me. That's the important part. But there was so much information here. It might've been a little too much, but it's totally acceptable. So he did cover all three things. I want to make sure that in all of these sermon reviews at the end, I talk about them covering all three things versus my opinion of methodology. So did he cover all three things? A hundred percent. He covered all three things. What would I question about his methodology? Not really a lot other than that. It's, it, it, it almost was like drinking out of a, a of a, of a, of a uh, fire hose. Like it was just a lot of information all at once. 
but it was all good. So it's a matter of, you know, sitting down and sort of breaking that out. If their church does small groups, maybe breaking down specific parts of this would be helpful to sort of decompress. Because one of the things that sometimes we pastors do is give you a lot of information and don't give you an outlet to decompress from all of that and talk through some of it. And sometimes that would be helpful because there's so much, some of that has to come out. I'm sure there's questions that came from this for some people. So just giving an opportunity for that. But anyway, hopefully that's good. Again, that's methodology, not the three things. Did he cover the three things we look at and think should be in every sermon? 100%. His methodology, I think, was pretty solid in this sermon. Like the, the really confusing part for me is this one, as well as the last one, seems to be ha- be given on a, on a, a night like on a Sunday or Saturday night or a Wednesday, like it doesn't seem like this is Sunday morning, which is just confusing to me. Like when does he preach if it's not Sunday morning, but obviously this isn't Sunday morning. But so what's the difference between the one that I'm, that I looked at before, which is just so politically and culturally driven with almost no hope versus this one, which is all about being stabilized in Jesus. Um, It's just confusing, but this one, Highly recommend. I think that was very well done. Let me know what you think in the comment section below. Do you like these rewinds where I look at a pastor I've previously looked at and give them another shot with another sermon? Let me know what you think below. If you enjoyed this, leave a like. It's free. It helps. I'll talk to you next time.